we're going to be taking a look at a passage of God's Word that's really going to lead us into many other passages. Um, I don't know if you do this. I, I would imagine we all do. I'm not sure that we can help but doing this. That when you hear a story, you begin to visualize the things that you're hearing. And whenever it comes to issues concerning the Word of God and the events that took place concerning Christ, uh, from the Christmas arrival, you, you probably picture in your mind a little bit what that looked like as Mary and Joseph are making their way to Bethlehem and as the babe is born and the angels' announcements and the shepherds coming, and you picture that. I think the same thing is true when it comes to our visualizing the events that unfold around the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. In, in my mind's eye, I picture the events that take place when Christ is in the garden. And uh, don't, don't you have kind of a mental picture of something like that where he's praying? And then the soldiers come and they arrest him and they take him to the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling body of the Jews. They were the people that really called the shots. And uh, he's standing in front of them. And um, then he is taken to Pilate the next day. And as he stands before Pilate, he uh, is condemned to death, not by Pilate, but by the people who had uh, brought him there. When all of these things begin to be visualized in my mind... um, I I find myself being distracted now by a lot of the television programs that are being made because no longer is it a a picture that is in my mind, but now it's one that they present on the television. And I guess that's not a bad thing. Uh, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It, It just happens that way. But one of the events that really becomes prominent in my thinking is one that we read about this morning. And if you have your Bibles with you, and if you don't, please feel free to take one of the uh, Bibles that are in the pew in front of you. And uh, if you will, please turn back to Matthew chapter 27 for this uh, event. This is now the morning of the crucifixion of Jesus. And he has been brought before Pilate, the governor, Uh, the man who actually had the power uh, to put a person to death. He was placed in that position of power by the Roman government, and uh, he was not a particular favorite of the the Jews in Jerusalem because Rome's presence there meant there was an occupying army that uh, really kept them under their thumb. So if the Jews wanted to do anything in particular that uh, would involve such an event as the crucifixion of Christ, they had to first go before Pilate. When Pilate examined Jesus, as we read this morning, he understood that the reason for which the Sanhedrin brought Christ before him was because of envy. They were very envious of the fact that this man who had come, who had now done mighty works before the people who taught as no one before him ever taught. He taught as one with authority. They refused to make their way through the fog, through the haze of his identity to look to see who he really was. And instead, what they saw was that they were losing influence. They were losing the the power that they had with the people and Jesus was beginning to take that over. 
um, they figured the only way to take care of him is to kill him. Uh, Get him out of the way. Finish him off. They bring him to Pilate. Pilate puts him on trial, asks him some questions. The answers that Jesus gives uh, to him are answers that are somewhat astounding, and they really take him by surprise. And then in the process of all of these events taking place between Pilate and, and Jesus, his, uh, Pilate's wife comes to him and says, don't have anything to do with this just man because he, I, I, I've had a, a terrible uh, nightmare, so to speak, this vision that I've had concerning him. And we're not told exactly what that was, but it was enough to tip her off that Pilate really needed to not do what the Jews wanted him to do. Well, Pilate is convinced that he can let Jesus go, and he was hoping that there would be a, uh, an outcry from the people for the release of Jesus because there, there was this annual event that took place around the time of the Passover where Pilate would release one of the prisoners, one of the, the Jewish individuals who had broken the law, and he would release them at the request of the people. And he brought before them a terrible man, a man by the name of Barabbas, who probably was guilty of murder and may have been guilty of other things of which we're not specifically told. But he puts this man, anticipating that, that the crowd is going to cry out, well, release Jesus, because all he's done has been good things. But instead, the leaders had really stoked the crowd to call for Barabbas relief, release. And so here's Pilate kind of caught in this tradition, and he has to release Barabbas as the crowd cried out, release him. Then he turns and he does something that is extremely incredible. He takes a basin of water and he washes his hands And he says, I am innocent of the blood of this innocent, this righteous man. And he believes that for a moment in doing this gesture of washing his hands, he can release himself from the guilt that will be his by virtue of his involvement with the crucifixion of Christ. And then he says to the crowd, take him, do do whatever you're going to do. And uh, they did. And as you know, the crowd took him and they crucified him. And then they laid him in a grave. The hands of this man, he thought he could be cleansed by some overt act. Something that he could do that would release him from the guilt of putting an innocent man to death. His hands were not the only hands that we see at this debacle. Jesus tells us about other hands that were seen at the time of his arrest and his crucifixion. And the hands that we begin to see are sinful hands. Jesus, when he had been walking with his disciples, said to them that he would... um, be facing, and and let me give you a little bit more of a background. He would be facing a trial at the hands of sinful men. They had been gathering up in in, um, uh, uh, Galilee, in the northern part of of Israel. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands 
of men. And what he was saying is this. I have come as God in the flesh. I came to perform a miraculous work in taking the sinfulness of man upon myself. And it will be at the hands of man that I will die and I will be put to death. The Bible tells us that the disciples were were very, very uh, distraught over this particular event. And as a result of that, they, they were saddened. But they made their way to Jerusalem uh, because it was now time for Christ to be crucified. When he got to Jerusalem, these events that we have just pictured begin to unfold. He's now taken to the cross. And we see hands emerging once again. The hands of the sinful Jews who had become so envious and jealous of Jesus that the Bible tells us in the process of their trying him, they were looking for a way to accuse him and to find a reason to put him to death. And they couldn't find anything until he made a statement. Jesus said that he would be standing at the right hand of the power on high and he would one day come back again. The Jews jumped on that as their opportunity to find fault in him. And the fault was, as they termed it, blasphemy. He is making himself equal with God. What more do we have to to hear? And then the Bible says this. They began to spit upon him, and they struck him with their hands. They took him to Pilate, who then put him on trial and went through that process that we just described a few moments ago where he washed his hands and then he turns Jesus over to the Roman soldiers. And now the Romans are involved. These Gentiles, these these men who had nothing to do with the Jewish traditions, but they were sinful men. And they took Jesus, and the Bible tells us this, that they made a crown of thorns, and they placed it upon his head, and then they gave him a robe, and then they began to strike him with their hands. So we have Pilate's hands, and we have the Jews' hands, and we have the Gentiles' hands, the Romans, and they drive the spikes into Jesus' hands. Do me a favor. Look at your hands. Just look at your hands, okay? Probably there's nothing unusual about them, but there is something you need to be aware of. Your fingerprints are on that cross because Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. And if we had forensic experts who could take the sins of, uh, take the, the fingerprints of all of sinful mankind, they would be able to lift my fingerprints and they would be able to lift your fingerprints because our hands were on him when he died there. We are just as guilty as anybody else because it's the sins of the world that was placed upon Christ when he went to the cross. So it was sinning hands that are 
there. Beyond that, there were the smitten hands, the hands of Jesus himself. Hands that had never committed a sin. From the time of his conception, he was protected from the very nature that dwells within us, that makes us sinners, in, into which we respond by committing sinful deeds. But there was none of that with him. Jesus' hands were absolutely pure. These are the hands that reached out and healed the lame. These are the hands that touched the eyes of the blind and caused them to see. These are the hands of the one who reached into the death beer and raised from the dead, reached into the tomb and brought Lazarus from the dead. These are the hands that looked to the children and said, forbid them not to come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. These were hands that were loving hands, that were kind hands, that were generous hands. And those hands have spikes driven into them. And he is mounted on the cross. And for the hours that he spent there, he suffered as no man before him or after him ever suffered. Not simply because of the physical agony. There were, there were many, many people who were crucified under the Romans. So it, it wasn't the physical anguish that he was going through. Instead, it was during that time of darkness that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was during that period of time that your sins and mine were heaped upon him so that the wrath of an almighty, all-powerful, all-righteous God could be satisfied that our sins would not be overlooked, but they would be paid for. And when Christ cried, it is finished... He cried out in such a way that the work of our redemption had been complete. He had paid for our sins. There was no further judgment that needed to come because of our sins. If we are identified with him. And that's where the rub comes. Those hands that had been pierced by the spikes were laid in the grave. And at this point in time, it appears to the disciples that it's all over. I mean, you, you had put your trust in this man. You, you felt that he was the one who had been promised, that they had been waiting centuries to, to see and to hear. And now he had come and we were convinced he was the one. But now he's gone. He's dead. And there in the coldness of that borrowed tomb, those pierced hands laid in complete silence, the silence of death. But something happened. You know what it was. Three days later, those hands came back to life. The Bible tells us that the stone was rolled away 
Christ came out of the grave and those hands that had been smitten by sinful people were now hands that because of the resurrection could reach down and save those who needed salvation, which was everyone who would come to Christ and receive him as their savior. Those saving hands, hands that we want to be very, very long hands because they've got to reach down a long way. And and I'm not talking about reaching down from heaven down to earth. I'm talking about reaching as low as you and I could possibly go. Hands that can reach down to the murderer, to the sexually sinful, to the thief, to the abuser. The Bible tells us very specifically, the hands of the Lord are not shortened that they cannot save. Does does that penetrate your thinking? Do Do you get what that's saying? You can't go low enough, but the hand of Christ can reach down to save you. Is that not good news? I don't know what your backgrounds are like. I, I don't know of the things of which you're guilty. But I know this. He had to reach down a long way for me. And it doesn't matter how far down you might be, the hand of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save. And then when that hand arrives there, you know what else we want? We want it to be strong. We want that hand to be powerful. We, uh, we, we've seen in the news over the past few weeks some events that have taken place that really touch our hearts. And, and it's really kind of a neat thing when you see good news on the news, isn't it? It, it? It's not all that often. But some of you remember just recently there were fires that had broken out and, and some of the firemen had been wearing cameras. And it shows the firemen going into the burning house and rescuing. I think in one case they rescued a lady who was doomed. She was going to die. And then in another case, there were several children that big, strong hands of these firemen grab those children and they carry them out to safety. The hands that reach down to a sinful person like me, to a sinful person like you, are strong and mighty hands. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. It was by the hands of God that the heavens were fashioned. It's by his hands that that incredible universe that we see and the earth on which we dwell and all of the beauty of creation and all of the complexity of what God has made and then the vastness that's beyond our ability to comprehend are part of the work of his hands that reach down to sinful individuals and gives them life. Now, I want hands that can reach all the way to where I am. And I want them to be strong enough that they can give me life. But I also want them to be tender. You know, many of you have probably gone through surgeries where you've been confronted with a painful situation where the scalpel cuts through the flesh and then the instruments are used to deal with whatever the illness or the injury might be. 
And, and, and you know there has to be pain, but you want the hands of the surgeon to be tender and you want them to be gentle. You don't want them to be doing any harm. And the hands of Christ that reach down and hold the powerful hands are the most tender, gentle hands that tell us this. If you will trust in me, I will take you from the realm of death and I will bring you into the realm of life and you will be mine forever. Those are saving hands. If it stopped there, I'd still feel short of what I would hope those hands would be able to do. And they are able to secure. Not only do they save, but they secure us. The Lord himself said this in John chapter 10. He said, speaking of those who would trust in him, I give them eternal life. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. I misquoted that. I give to them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. The Father who has given them to me, who is greater than all, no one can take them out of his hands. Do you understand what the Lord just said? That the moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, those long, powerful, tender hands wrap you and enfold you within them and give life that can never be taken away. Your failures, your acts of sin, your weakness can never take you out of his hands. Those hands are absolutely securing hands and they are the hands of absolute authority. The Lord said to his disciples after his resurrection from the dead, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And when you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the risen living Savior, he has the absolute authority to see that he will bring you safely home. Those are his hands but we still see his hands even today. The hands of Christ are now beckoning hands. And he does not force us to embrace the truth of what Christ did for us at the cross of Calvary. He does convince us And once we are convinced, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit of God will convict. It means he will convince us of sin, the very fact that we are guilty and deserve nothing but condemnation and separation from God for all eternity. He convicts us of righteousness. It's the understanding that unless something deals with my sin and gives me a righteousness that is not my own, I have no hope. 
Because the third thing he convinces us of is judgment, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. If I do not receive that righteousness that was provided through the sacrifice of Christ, then I will have to stand in judgment before a holy God who will not be able to just overlook my sin, but will cast me into the lake of fire. Now the question is, those hands that are reaching down, that are beckoning you, and that are asking you to come, will you entrust yourself to those hands? You see, the only hope that we have is not the fact that Jesus died for our sins and was buried and rose again from the dead, though that is fact. It's not the fact that is the issue. It's the acceptance of that fact and the belief and the embracing of the truth of what Christ did for us that brings about forgiveness of sins as we turn from our sin and we trust in Christ as our Savior. As many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. And my invitation to you is this. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this should be the day. What what better time would there be than on Resurrection Sunday to say, on that day, I finally made the decision to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he not only died for my sins, listen to me, He not only died for my sins, he died for me. Now it's personal. Now it's not just information. It's not just fact. It is he died for me. I am trusting him as my Savior. Will you do that today? Will you trust him? And if you know Christ is your Savior, Would you determine by the grace of God to live every day that he gives you upon the face of this earth that you would live every one of those days for the praise of his glory because he is worthy, isn't he? Isn't he? He is risen. Okay, come on now. You got to answer me here, okay? This is a tradition that has gone down through centuries of time. It's not going to die at Grace Baptist Church on Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's stand. Father, thank you for the hands of Jesus. Those hands that were spiked to the cross those hands that were so gentle and tender and loving, those hands that are not shortened, that they cannot save, those hands that are powerful and securing. And I pray, Father, that today your Holy Spirit would do his work in the hearts of each one of us. I pray, Father, for those who came today who didn't know the Savior, that they would not leave without knowing him and trusting him and realizing that the only righteous standing we can ever have before you is a righteousness that is imputed to us, that is given to us because of our identification with Jesus Christ. I thank you that he's the one
that carried our sin upon himself and died, but then rose from the dead. We thank you. In the name of our risen Savior, we pray. Amen. God bless you.